Welcome to Ridgecrest Baptist. We thank you for listening. Now, here is this week's message. Um, and we praise the Lord. I mean, I know y'all work so hard, and we're just so thankful. And so, uh, we just praise the Lord for uh, y'all's ability to help us to use music to worship. So thank you for being here tonight. I want to encourage you to take your Bibles to open those to Judges chapter 13. Judges chapter 13 is our text. And this is a story that since uh, I've been a little kid, I've always been in love with and fascinated with. It's the story of Samson. And obviously, uh, we are just going to look at chapter 13 tonight, which is only the introduction into his life. But it's an exciting story. And when you look at Samson for a little kid, I think especially because, you know, when we think of Samson, we remember that he did these feats of strength. I mean, it was he was like the original power team, you know, that... Uh, that goes, travels around, does the, all these feats of strength. And, um, you know, is amazing in, in, in all these stories. You know, if I, if I uh, asked you what you thought Samson would look like in your mind, you probably are picturing somebody that looks like a bodybuilder. You know, I started to put up on the screen some, and, and I was so thankful for Carson and, and all the guys that are helping me with slides, and Carson's doing a great job, but, I didn't want to give him too much to do, but I was thinking, you know, we could put up maybe a professional wrestler, one of these guys you see on the TV on these professional wrestlers, because, I mean, he, the, some of these guys are, you know, so huge and large and muscular, and we might put, you know, a lot of those guys have long hair, too, and so you think of somebody that looks like maybe a, a professional wrestler or um, somebody as a bodybuilder, but the fact is, he probably didn't look like that at all. He probably didn't have a whole lot of muscles. Um, we know he had long hair, as we're, and you should probably know that because y'all are the Sunday night crowd. <clears throat> but he probably didn't look like a bodybuilder. And if you look at pictures of him, they always depict him like that. But everybody is going to keep asking him, what is the secret to your strength? And if you look at, you know, Roman Reigns or one of these professional wrestlers or some kind of, you know, bodybuilder, you don't go up and say, what's the secret to your strength? Because I can see it's the fact that you're, you're bulked up and you're in the gym all the time and you're taking steroids. So we know what the secret to your strength is. <laughs> so the, the story of Samson is, is, is really the story of a normal-looking guy, probably a guy, you know what I think of? I think of the main character that uh, are one of the brothers, the younger brothers in the Duck Dynasty series. What was the main brother's name, the lead guy? Phil? No, no Phil's the older. Willie. Willie? I think we probably should have put a picture of Willie up, the guy that always has the bandana on his head. I mean, that's Samson. And we're looking at him going, how in the world are you so strong? So as a kid, you're always fascinated by this story. And it's, and it's a great story. It's a timeless story of principles. But it's, it's a story that also has um, a component to it, really, for, for not just for kids, but it's to teach us as adults the, 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 the lessons that we need to learn from Samson's life, because in a lot of ways he is us and we are Samson. And he really was a picture of Israel. So we're going to dive into the story of Samson. And the title of this sermon tonight is It Is Finished. It's from our series entitled One True Savior. And the, the sermon is entitled It Is Finished. And if you have been with us, and most of y'all have been, what we found is that Israel has been riding a cycle of, of 
failure in their lives where they've had all of these different experiences over and over. And we come to another judge and finally we come to Samson and he's the last judge in the book of Judges. And there's going to be a few more chapters in the book of Judges we'll look at, but he's really the last true judge. And he actually is the one we find out the most about. There's a number of chapters on his life and the most information about any judge is given to us. And he summarizes all of the judges and he summarizes the life of a sinner because what we find is he's the very best that we could put forward. He's the superman of our race and he disappoints us in every way possible. And he reminds us of the point of the book of Judges, which is essentially this. We can't find the solutions we need in life through just a temporary fix. And it reminds us tonight that we need to look at our own lives and how we are prone to look to things in this world to give us solutions that only God can solve. The book of Judges asks us tonight, what is your temporary fix? What is that thing in your life that if you feel like if I could just get this, then I, then my life would be a lot better and I'd, I'd really be peaceful. I'd be at peace. I would have rest in my life. Samson's father's name was Manoah and that means a person at peace. And he was not. He was anything but a person at peace and God was calling him to be that way by putting his faith in one true Savior. But he was a man who was always looking for a temporary fix. That's kind of the nature of the Christian life today and the problem we have in life. That's why this is so relevant and it's so important. It's a 3,000-year-old story that could have been written this afternoon. And that's because it was written by an eternal God who knows our hearts. You know, we live in a culture that boasts about the advancement of human power and human capability. But really what we find out if we look at our own lives is the very best humans are still standing flawed before God. And they still stand in need of one true Savior. And of course, that's the Lord Jesus Christ. So from the 13th chapter of Judges, I want us to see tonight three reasons tonight that you can trust God. And that's really what God is calling you to. What God is saying to you tonight is trust me. I'm sure if I asked every single one of you confidentially, do you have something in your life that's causing you anxiety? You would say, absolutely, I do. I could raise my hand and if I said, you know, let's have a time of prayer for anybody that's in a difficult situation in life. And probably all of us would, or almost all of us would raise our hands. This sermon speaks to, through the scriptures, it's not the sermon, it's the word of God applied to your life. That there are reasons why tonight God is saying to you that you can trust him. You can trust his word and you can trust the God of the Bible. And that's what God is saying to us tonight. And the reason for that is there's a truer and better judge than Samson. And so these uh, tonight are going to be biblical reasons from this text that we can trust God and we can know we have a hope and a future that we can lean into God's power, follow Christ as our leader and find our ultimate satisfaction in God in 2020 and make a decision that... And whatever is causing us anxiety in life, that we're going to trust God for it. And that's what the story we're going to look at tonight is going to teach us. Judges 13, verse 1. Now the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord, so that the Lord gave them into the hands of the Philistines forty years. There was a certain man of Zorah, of the family of the Danites, whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and had borne no children. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, 
Now you are barren and have borne no children, but you shall conceive and give birth to a son. Now, therefore, be careful not to drink wine or strong drink, nor eat any unclean thing. For behold, you shall conceive and give birth to a son, and no razor shall come upon his head. For the boy shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to deliver Israel from the hands of the Philistines. We begin this story with a refrain that by this point in time, if you've been with us, we've heard, I think six other times it is, we've seen this refrain, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, or the Israelites did evil in the sight of the Lord. In Judges chapter 2, twice in Judges 3, in chapter 4, 6, and 10, this is the seventh and final time that we hear this refrain, the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. And one of the things that, again, that we should walk away from tonight right off the bat is to ask the question, when it comes to defining evil, who gets to determine, whose sight does it matter, and who determines uh, what is right and wrong? You know, whose eyes matter? We live in a society today that's basically trying to say that People can decide what's right and wrong, and God is either changing or the Bible is no longer trustworthy. And the purpose of judges is to really cause us to see every time that humanity decides what's right in their own eyes, which is how we're bent. We're bent to say we're going to decide what's right and wrong. We, first of all, move away from trust in God, and we, secondly, bring upon ourselves a sense of fear and anxiety. Israel's biggest problem was they would never admit that what they were doing wrong until it was way too late. And so, uh, you know, right off the bat, one of the takeaways from this sermon is um, to make it clear in the book of Judges, sin is defined by God, not human society. Sin is violating God's standards from his word. So that ought to be how we look at the world, our worldview, our, the lens that we look through, our biblical worldview as a follower of Christ. And it, and it causes and challenges us to ask questions about you know, how we define sin and how much we trust the Word of God. And, and you know the story of Judges, and basically what we continue to look at is how believers in the book of Judges, how God's people will start out dabbling with the the secular side of society, and it's fun, and then that continues into a cycle that leads eventually to sin, and that sin is fun at first, you know, and it's been said, if you don't believe that sin is fun at first, you're really not being honest with yourself, but then that sin continues into slavery, where you want to get out of it, but you can't, and that's basically how sin works and how Satan works in our lives, and eventually our families are laid to waste as a result. And every cycle that we've been going through, what I've been calling the Ferris wheel of failures, is actually not the same. It actually begins out in a, in a certain length of time. And if you study the book of Judges, you'll notice that the lengths of time are increasing. And here at the seventh and final uh, cycle around, or at least the cycle around that we're in, in the book of Judges, it comes to the longest and the worst season of oppression of Israel, 40 years with the Philistines. Forty years in the Bible is a symbol, it's, a, it's a, a number that symbolizes completeness of judgment. If you think about the unbelievable rainstorm, and I pray that you came through your, the storm yesterday without any damage to your home, and I thank God that it, it rained for 20 or 30 minutes and not longer, 
Can you imagine if it rained like that for 40 days and 40 nights? There is no doubt in my mind 40 days and 40 nights of raining as hard as it did for 20 minutes at our homes yesterday, this world would be completely flooded. But 40 is the, is the symbol, in, as in that case of Noah, that there's been complete judgment by God. And so what the narrator is communicating here is complete and final judgment, and it's the Philistines. The Philistines are super oppressors. They're the most wicked of any group that we've seen. And of all the nations around Israel that they, they found themselves um, getting into the idols of, and of all the nations around Israel, they were the most pagan, they were the most cruel, they were the most wicked I mean, they were notorious for their wickedness. They were, by the way, not stupid people. Technologically, they were vastly superior to the Israelites. They were metal experts. And they had pioneered the use of making steel so that they had swords that were stronger than the Israelites' swords. And they could, when you went into a battle, like a, uh, you know, hand-to-hand combat, they would snap the swords of the Israelites simply by having stronger steel. Their metallurgy was superior. Their technical understanding of um, how to use art- artillery through the bow and arrow was superior. They were better tacticians and, strate- and, and strategy makers on the battlefield, so they crushed the Israelites on the battlefield. And so they were not stupid, but they were notoriously uh, cruel. Whenever they would capture enemy people, they would torture them for days on end, and then they would have these parties where they would torture their prisoners, and these parties were unspeakable in their debauchery. They loved pork. They were a people that would love to have uh, a pig roast, and they would literally have a, a barbecue and drink beer and drink wine, and these parties would last seven days. They were seven days long, and they involved every other thing that you could imagine that would be debauchery. In short, they were the ultimate enemy. They were the worst of the worst or the baddest of the bad. And so that's who we have finally arrived in this story. And again, this is God's way of saying, if we play with sin or if we let our children and our grandchildren dabble in sin, it ends in this kind of a lifestyle. And that's why we have to guard our families from entering down pathways where they're dabbling and playing around with things that they don't need to because it will get out of control. And so the, 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 we go back to our text and we look at it, and here's what's different about what we've seen in the past because we've seen these cycles of failure, but there's something different tonight. And what's different tonight is that Israel doesn't do one phase that we have seen over and over in the book of Judges, and that's the phase of crying out to God for help. They never got to a place in this text that I read where they actually asked for God to intervene and save them. And the question is why? And the answer is for probably two different reasons. One reason was was because they had assimilated into the Philistine culture. They had become so much like the non-believers that they didn't really realize the lifestyle they were living was so far away from God. And that's a warning to us. And that's part of the lesson of Samson's life. It, it's, we're called out. You know, one of the great intimidating texts of the Bible to me is, Be ye holy because I am holy. It troubles me that God calls us to be holy. 
but he does. And so these people, they had assimilated into the um, culture, and their philosophy had become, we're whipped. We're, it's over with. We're done. We like a lot of the parts of the Philistine culture. We probably like their pork and their beer, and we like the pagan parties, and we like the, the sexual practices and their religious practices. And they reached a point where they weren't even calling out to God anymore. And the second reason they weren't calling out to God was because it was really hopeless anyway. I mean, in their view, it was a hopeless situation. Why, you know, it's kind of like, what's the point? They were at the, you know, this place in life where they felt hopeless to be able to be separated again from this Philistine enemy and to ever see their own culture again have autonomy. And all of this setting brings us to a first, what I'm calling reasons for you to say tonight to God. And what I'm really asking you to do tonight is make a decision in prayer that you're going to call upon God tonight to give you the strength to trust Him in 2020 for whatever that is, this, that thing that's causing you to be hopeless, for whatever that thing is in your life, and there's something that you're saying, if I had this, then I'd be fixed. I, I need a temporary fix, and God is saying to us all, really, and I'm speaking to myself, I mean, this is the story of my life. So I'm not preaching to y'all, I'm preaching to myself. And the story is that I need a temporary fix, and God is saying, no, you don't. You need to learn to trust me. And... Uh, what we come to this first reason why we can do that is, number one, God's wonderful love is present even when you don't seek Him. The reason that we can trust God is because of who He is. And in our life, He loves us like a father personally. And even when we are not doing the right thing and even when we don't seek Him out, His love is present in our life, and He's acting in our best self-interest. And that's why you can trust Him, because of who He is. In verse 1 and 2, we see that God's grace is coming without them calling out. This is a new thing, and what God is really saying to us in our life is He's still that way today. Even when you feel hopeless, God is seeking to bring solutions into your life because He loves you, and He's doing what's right in your life. You see, this woman um, is not even named. If you read the text carefully, everybody else has a name, but she is not named. It says this Manoah's wife was barren. She'd borne no children. And the narrator knows what her name is. But he's withholding that information from us on purpose in order to make a point. And the point is that she's a person that's lost her identity. She doesn't have a name because she's hopeless. And in that culture, you, you have to really understand the, the gravity of not having a, ch- a child in that culture. And even today, it's devastating to many women. I think you probably have heard me, or a lot of y'all have heard me say that my other son that lives in Louisville, Kentucky, he and his wife are desperately trying to have children, and they can't have children. So one, one of my sons is pregnant uh, with their family and the other son, they can't have a child and they've tried all these different procedures and they've spent a lot of money going to infertility clinics and they can't 
seem to have a child. And so it's devastating my daughter-in-law that lives up there. And she desperately wants a child. But in ancient Israel, it was it, it meant for women there really more than it should have. It had taken on a belief in their culture that God was really cursing you. So for Israelites, it was more than just not having kids because they had adopted really, I think, a false theology that a lot of your legacy in life was really passed on through your children. So to have a name in the society meant you had to have children or you would be forgotten and you would basically die and not have a legacy on earth. And for them in ancient Israel, that had taken on such a belief that it meant that when God, you didn't have children, that God was almost removing his blessings from your life as a family, in particular as a woman. That you were being cursed and that God did not have his hand on your life and that God did not want you to have memory after your death. You were nameless. You had no identity. You had no legacy. You had not fulfilled your purpose for your husband. And this was a culture, too, that produced... Um, Crops. It was agrarian, meaning you've got to have workers. And if you, and they had no social security programs so that you could, you know, set money aside. When you got old, your, your children, they were your social security program. To not have children meant that when you got old, you were going to be alone. They didn't have places to go to and they didn't have governmental programs. And what, you know, even some of the laws of the Israelites were meant to, to help catch people that were falling through the cracks like that. But for most people, not to have children meant your old age was going to be, you're going to be a beggar. Now, all of this is weighing in against her and her, you know, husband. And she is nameless. She's a failure. And as far as she believes, she's hopeless. She's forgotten of God. And she is a picture of how Israel felt under the Philistine Conquest. So she symbolizes Israel and the plight of Israel to come into this situation they had where they seemed to be hopeless. And tonight, there's probably somebody in here that's saying, I'm in a situation I'm, and I just basically don't have a lot of hope. I'm hopeless. That scripture is going to speak to you tonight. There is hope. Because we're reminded in here that God did not leave them alone, but he sought them out. Even when they didn't feel like they had hope. And it was the angel of the Lord that appeared to them. And the angel of the Lord is the pre-incarnate son of God. It's Jesus before he became a man. When Jesus became a man, his name became Jesus of Nazareth. He was the Christ, the Messiah. The, 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 the promised truer and better judge of Israel. But prior to his birth in Bethlehem, and this is a thousand years before that, he existed eternally. There's never has been a time when the Son of God did not exist. He's eternal. He was not created. He's part of the, the Godhead we talked about this morning that was in full community when God said, let us make man in our image. And so Christ is here as the angel of the Lord. He is the pre-incarnate Son of God. And He appears to them and He speaks courage into their lives by coming when they didn't call on Him. And His message was, there is hope in me. And so God is no longer waiting. And I'm reminded uh, tonight, when I look at this, of the passage in Romans chapter 8, 
Verse 25, and we know what Romans 8.28 says, Sunday night crowd, but do you know what Romans 8.25 and 26 and 27 say right before it? Romans 8.25 says, but if we hope for what we do not see with perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Then verse 28, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. That passage is saying the Spirit of God is working on our behalf with groanings too deep for us and that the Lord Jesus is interceding for us when we don't know the words to say in prayer. And it's the same story we see right here. And so this is a picture of what's happening really in our lives as well. Now, she does, this woman does symbolize Israel. But for us today, she's a picture of God's people as well. And she's a picture of the need that we had for salvation. On the one hand, before you ever sense that God was doing anything in your life, according to the Bible, God was drawing you. And working in your life. And when you were enslaved, what really happened was you didn't call out to God. You don't find God. God finds you. And that's what happened in our lives and in your own salvation. The Bible says that God sought you out and drew you and explained the gospel to you in the Holy Spirit. And my theology gives you an ability to receive a gift, which is a decision of, of non-determinative free will that you can make. It's a decision that obviously brings you mercy and grace instead of the wrath of God. So in, in a large sense, that is what is pictured here. Is God at work in our lives when we needed salvation, but it's more than just to get you saved. It's also for believers tonight that God is working in your life. So I want to encourage you tonight that whatever you are struggling with in your life, God is at work. God's on the move. That's what this means, that he's opening and closing doors years in advance. And he's dealing in situations where we feel like there's no hope. And that ought to give us a sense that God is good, that God's somebody that we can trust. And it's, that's why we have to know these stories from the Bible. Because the only way that we can really define who God is and understand who he is is through his word. But when we see in this story that Samson is this uh, judge, what we begin to see is the, the parallels between his life and the life of Christ. He's the first judge that we've encountered that was called out to be a judge from birth. To be, and again, the word judge is like a savior, rescuer. He's the first savior, rescuer that's raised from birth. And God is saying everybody else that has been a savior, rescuer has not been enough. They've been only temporary, and we need to find somebody who is raised from birth to rescue you, and it really is beginning to point to this miraculous birth that would come through the actual Messiah. Obviously, Christ is not going to be born for another thousand years, but God is preparing His people to know that when He's born, it's going to be miraculous. It's going to be sovereign, and it's going to be God showing that He's in control. That's what God is showing in this situation, he's saying, I'm going to come in grace. I'm going to help you overcome 
through a Savior who will be called from birth to save you. And Samson is called to be a Nazarite. A Nazarite was somebody that the Old Testament book of Numbers described. And if you wanted to read about it, you'd go to Numbers chapter 6. And what it would say is to be a Nazarite was usually temporary. A Nazarite was somebody who said, I'm going to take a special vow for a certain period of time. I'm not going to cut my hair. I'm not going to drink any wine products from the grape. And I'm not going to touch anything that's dead. Those were the three restrictions. No hair cutting, nothing from the grapevine, and not and to never touch a dead thing. And so God would take that person and put a special commitment on their life called a Nazarite vow. And as I said, it was almost always temporary. And it was only in the case of Samson was it deemed to be a lifelong vow. And so he's called out to be a Nazarite from the womb for life. And again, what this really just tells us is that the Messiah is going to be distinct. That the, the, the one true Savior is going to be distinct from birth, holy. And they need to be looking for somebody like that. He'd be um, somebody that would be different from what Israel was. You know, Israel had been birthed supernaturally, but... They had obviously always been flawed. And so the, 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 what is this is telling us is that we need to be looking for the Lord Jesus. And so the angel of God is now speaking in verse 5, and he says these critical words. I don't know if you picked up on this at verse 5. He said, and your son will begin to deliver Israel. In other words, if Samson only will begin to deliver Israel, then who's going to finish what Samson started? And, we're, and again, we're intrigued. And God is teaching us, trust me, I have a plan. I'm in control. I'm sovereign. And that's the message to us tonight. Whatever your life is, God is saying, if you can see my plan was at work in the life of Israel, who were my people, then you can see that I've always been on my throne and I'm sovereign and tonight I'm still in control. And we come to the, you know, this passage. Um, what ends up happening is the angel disappears and he's only talking with the woman. And so she goes to her husband Manoah and tells him what's happening. And he, quite frankly, wants to see it for himself. And so he basically begins to pray and says, Lord, you know, if this was really for us and you want us to do something for this child, then let the angel of the Lord appear again to us. And we come to verse 11. Look at verse 11. It says, Then Manoah arose and followed his wife. And when he came to the man, he said to him, This is the angel of the Lord. Are you the man who spoke to the woman? And he said, I am. Amen. Manoah said, now when your words come to pass, what shall be the boy's mode of life and his vocation? And watch how the, the, in verse 13, the angel of the Lord, how Christ responds. He says, so the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, let the woman pay attention to all that I said. In other words, I've already told you. Everything you need to know. Verse 14, she should not eat anything that comes from the vine nor drink wine. Have we heard this? Yes. That's what I read earlier. 
nor drink wine or strong drink, nor eat any unclean thing. Let her observe all that I commanded. Then Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, Please let us detain you so that we may prepare a young goat for you. Now, at first, this sounds good. But notice how the angel of the Lord responds in verse 16. The angel of the Lord said to Manoah, Though you detain me, I will not eat your food. But if you prepare a burnt offering, then offer it to the Lord. For Manoah did not know that he was the angel of the Lord. And what's what's beginning to unfold here in that culture is this. When you had a meal with somebody, it entered you into a level of fellowship. It entered you into, uh, in many cases, the ability to put that meal as leverage for getting something from the person you fed. The angel of the Lord, being the divine Son of God, the eternal Son of God, perceives Manoah's point in all of this is not pure. It's not that he wants to honor God as he says. Otherwise, he would have ate the food. So it's not that he wants to be honored, doesn't want to be honored. It's that Manoah is trying to use this meal as leverage to get something kind of like this, you know, I'll do for you and then you have to do for me thing. I'm going to put you under obligation. That's probably why he asked him his name as well, because when you get names from people, what you're really doing is getting information that you can use to understand a person, their history, their tribe, where they're from. Um, what they're like. And, and this is what he says in, in verse um, verse 16. Again, it says, Though you detain me, I will not eat your food, For, but if you prepare a burnt offering, then offer it to the Lord. For Manoah did not know that he was the angel of the Lord. Verse 17, Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, What is your name? So that when your words come to pass, we may honor you. But the angel of the Lord said to him, Why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? The words wonderful were only used by the Hebrews in that way as a divine name. And what is beginning to develop now is a little bit clearer. And and what's developing is that Manoah doesn't really trust this situation and who he's talking with is going to be a plan that's going to be good. Manoah's problem now is, is basically, I don't have enough information to decide if I'm going to trust you. And he's probing for more information. He's asking the question, you know, if you will show me more details or when, if you would show me more details, then I would be willing to follow you wholeheartedly. Who does that sound like? I'll tell you who it sounds like. It sounds like me. And it probably sounds like you. I mean, we are prone to tell God constantly, I want to understand more about the details of your plans for my life. And then I'll decide whether or not I actually think they're good and you're trustworthy. And we're always in a tension with God where God is saying, why do you ask my plans for you? Why do you ask details when you know who I am? My name is wonderful. 
And so what God is really saying to us tonight is the second reason to trust him in 2020 is number two, God's wonderful plans are good even when you don't really trust him. That we can say to God, I don't have a lot of information. I, I don't really fully understand how this is working out, but I know that your plans are wonderful because you are wonderful. That's what God, he wants us to trust him like a little child and you trust uh, their father in the deep end of the pool when they can't swim. And the daddy says, well, come over here and I'm going to get over here where it's six feet deep or where it's five and a half feet deep. And I'm standing right here and you can't swim. And you certainly can't trust the, touch the bottom. But I'm going to stand over here and call you out and, and say, I want you to, to jump out into this water we sang about. Knowing that if the daddy doesn't catch the child and the daddy doesn't grab the child and, and be with the child, the child's going to sink to the bottom. But the father wants to know that that child trusts him. And that's God in a nutshell in terms of how he wants us to respond to him. And whatever that thing is that we're seeking for in our life in 2020 to get some resolution. And so the second reason, again, is that God's plans are wonderful because God's wonderful. And that's what Manoah was being challenged with here. And Manoah wanted details, and God is saying, I want you to be faithful to my commands and trust that I'm faithful to you. And so the, the key verse again is verse 18. But the angel of the Lord said to him, why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? And the answer was this divine person who's standing before you. The Son of God is saying, I'm not going to give you the details, Manoah. I'm not going to give you the details, but when I'm, what I've given you is sufficient to trust me. I mean, that is exactly what God has been saying to me so many years. He's just going to give us the next step in life. And asking us, obviously, to say, God, I'm just going to go ahead and trust what you've already told me to do because I know who you are. And I know you're a good father. And I know that you're trustworthy and that your plans are good. And you're the same God that's in the Scriptures. And that if you were trustworthy in, in 1000 B.C., you're trustworthy in 2020. And so even if I don't see what you're doing, if I you know, can't see you out there, God, I'm going to continue to trust you. And that was really the third promise or the third reason that he gives to Manoah. Look at verse 19. Uh, Manoah, so Manoah took the young goat with the grain offering and offered it on the rock to the Lord. And he performed wonders while Manoah and his wife looked on. So it's visible. For it came about when the flame went up from the altar toward heaven that the angel of the Lord ascended in the flame of the altar. When Manoah and his wife saw this, they fell on their face to the faces to the ground. Now the angel of the Lord did not appear to Manoah or his wife again. Then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. So Manoah said to his wife, We will surely die, for we have seen God. But his wife said to him, If the Lord had desired to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering from our hands, nor would he have shown us all these things, nor would he have let us hear things like this at this time. Then the woman gave birth to a son and named him Samson, and the child grew up, and the Lord blessed him. And so the third reason from this that we're being spoken to from this passage of why we can trust God this year is number three, God's wonderful promises are true even when you don't see him. In verse 21, the angel disappeared, and the story, as it turns out, 
happens just the way the angel of the Lord promised it would. God's promises were true. He was born of a miraculous birth. Even though he was not visibly present again in their life, what he said would happen is going to come true. And all the promises of Scripture are that way in our lives. You know, all of the births that are miraculous in the Bible point to the fact that the Messiah would be born of a virgin. And Israel's birth, even out of the Red Sea, was a miraculous birth. But you had other people besides Samson. Obviously, Isaac, and the birth of Isaac was a miracle. And then Samuel and John the Baptist. And in each one of those cases, God allowed those births to take place. And it brought honor to those men. It brought honor to their, their families as well. But Jesus, his birth didn't bring honor to him. I don't know if you've ever really thought about it, but Jesus was humiliated by the Jews during the course of his life where they accused him of being born in fornication, that Joseph wasn't his father. And what that tells us is that when we go to the Scriptures and we read the Gospel, what we read in there is that Jesus loves us. See, he was willing to have the greatest honor and the greatest name the name above all names, and step out of that into our world to take on a world of of shame and dishonor in order that we might find honor by being adopted into the family of God. And Jesus was not a Nazarite. Nazarites, they were honored people. To be a Nazarite was to receive honor in your culture. Jesus was a Nazarene. And Philip and the other disciples said, Nazarene. The the Messiah is from Nazareth? That's some backwater hick town in Alabama. Nothing good comes out of Nazareth. He was a man who was willing to step into just a common backwater little village in order to save us. That's the story that we're beginning to see in the life of Christ. When we look at the love of Christ... We stand amazed in the presence of Jesus, the Nazarene, who loved us, who came down where Samson was self-centered, where Samson where it is going to always be about him. It's all about what I want. It's about my life. And But the Lord Jesus was the opposite. He was the truer and better Samson. He was the strong made weak so that we, the weak, might become strong in the power of God. I thank God for it. There was nothing the Bible says in the book of Isaiah that was attractive about the Lord Jesus. He had a servant's heart. He used his perfect strength to live the perfect life so that he'd die as a sacrifice, proving that he loves us and he is trustworthy in 2020. And you see in verse 5 that Samson was the one who would begin to deliver Israel, but it was in the story of the gospel that we know Jesus completed it because on the cross, when he was there hanging, bearing your wrath and your sin... That saved you for eternity, he cried out, It is finished. And I thank God for that. He's the truer and better Samson. And he's worthy for us to praise and worship, but he's also worthy for us to trust. And his message to us tonight is still, I have plans for you, and I know what those plans are, Jeremiah twenty nine, eleven. They're plans to bring about prosperity, not calamity in your life, to give you a future and a hope. It may be in the next world. But it will be a future with a hope. The best is yet to come. It may be in a new resurrected body that's cancer-free and pain-free. But folks, it's all because the Lord Jesus has promised us this. that We can lean into Him and knowing that He's going to take care of us. That all things are going to be new because it's finished. And I praise Him for it. 
So I'm going to ask you to pray with me tonight. And maybe tonight, maybe, just maybe, there's something that you can pray tonight. Lord, I come before you with a temporary fixed mentality. I come to you tonight, God, saying, um, I need you, Lord, to give me this thing in life. If I don't get it, I'm never going to be satisfied. And maybe what is happening in your life is God's working something out in a different way. You're not seeking Him. And He's working situations out in your life. Maybe tonight, in God's economy, He's doing things in your life where you're saying, God, I don't understand what you're doing. I need more details. I don't really trust you, so if you could explain this a little bit more, maybe give me some more details, I might be willing to trust you. And his answer is, I'm wonderful, and my plans for you are wonderful. And then maybe tonight God is reminding you that the Scriptures are true and that the promises of the Word of God are true. That even when you can't see Him, maybe He seems distant to you. But all His promises are yes and amen. And the the Word of God is speaking it to us tonight. And God is speaking to us through it, saying, you can trust me this year. We hope this message will help you in your spiritual walk and growth. For more about Ridgecrest, please visit us on the web at www.rbc-tuscaloosa.com. Have a great day and God bless.